Hello to Session 15, the final session of the World Sepsis Congress 2021. This session is titled Global Standards and Guidelines for the Management of Sepsis and COVID-19 Patients, and we have a fabulous lineup of speakers once more. The session is moderated by Maha Aljwaid, member of the GSA Executive from Saudi Arabia and kindly sponsored by Radiometer, who asked us to read the following message to you. Sepsis is often overlooked or recognized too late. That is why Radiometer has joined the fight against sepsis. We want to build awareness around the importance of early diagnosis and to empower healthcare professionals with vital diagnostic tools. Early detection can reduce spending in the management of sepsis patients and will help save lives. If you want to know more about how Radiometer offers the broadest POC diagnostic menu to support the current guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of sepsis, please visit us at www.radiometer.com. Now over to Maha to get this session started. Maha? Greetings, everyone. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. It's my immense pleasure to share with you the last session of the World Sepsis Congress. This session will be for the global standards and guidelines for management of sepsis and COVID-19 patients. My name is Mahal Joyed. I'm a clinical nurse specialist in neurocritical care and a member of the executive committee of the Global Sepsis Alliance from Saudi Arabia. I would like to thank our exclusive sponsor, uh, Radiometers, for sponsoring this session. And it's my immense pleasure to share with you our colleagues, eminent speakers, that they're going to share with us their knowledge, wisdoms, and experience related to the standards and guidelines for management of sepsis. Our first speaker is Dr. Laura Evans. Uh, Dr. Laura is going to talk about the surviving sepsis campaign effort uh, to incorporate input from low-middle-income countries. Dr. Evans is an associate professor of medicine from University of Washington. She is a director, a medical director for critical care uh, units at the University of Washington Medical Center. She obtained her medical degree from University of Michigan and get her residency training in University of Columbia, then get her fellowship in pulmonary critical care medicine, as well as a master in epidemiology. She joined the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Steering Committee in 2012 and she is currently the co-chair for the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines and COVID Management Guidelines, as well as she is the team leader for the National Health Institute for COVID Management. She's also the counsel for the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Evans' research interest is related to patient safety and quality improvement for sepsis particularly, as well as for preparedness for high consequences infectious diseases. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Evans. Thank you so much, Maha, and, and thanks for the very kind introduction. And it's a real pleasure to be here. And I do want to start by thanking the organizers of this fantastic Congress. I've had the opportunity to listen to several of the sessions over the last uh, two days. And, and I think the speakers have done a fantastic job and the organizers deserve a lot of credit for a really, really well done Congress with so much rich information from that. I'm going to spend, like Maha was saying, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes just talking about what we've been doing within the Surviving Sepsis Campaign to better effort, to make better efforts to incorporate low and middle income countries into the guidelines. 
I don't have any financial conflicts of interest to disclose. Like Maha mentioned, um, I do co-chair uh, the Adult Surviving Sepsis, Sepsis Guidelines, the um, Surviving Sepsis Campaign COVID-19 Management Guidelines, and I'm a steering committee member of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. So we've heard, um, I think, through several sessions already in this Congress about the profoundly unequal global burden of sepsis. And what I'm showing on the screen is just is a beautiful map from Christina Rudd's publication from Lancet in 2020, looking at the global burden of sepsis. And it is clearly profoundly unequal. I think, unfortunately, though, when we look at guideline development, the guideline development process typically hasn't recognized this really, really unequal distribution of the burden of sepsis. I want to spend just a minute or so kind of walking you through the background of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which started almost 20 years ago now, uh, in 2002. And it, you can probably describe it into sort of three phases, um, which have not, they're not running concurrently. Some of them are overlapping, particularly phase two and phase three when we talk about that. But phase one started in 2002 with what I think was a really bold declaration um, when people from mostly representing the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and the Society of Critical Care Medicine came together in Barcelona in 2002 and said, we are going to work together on a concerted effort to reduce mortality from, at that time, severe sepsis and septic shock by 25%. That led to the credit creation and the development of evidence-based guidelines, the first edition of which was published in 2004, um, and has since have been published in 2008, 2012, 2016, and will be coming out later this year in 2021. And I've had the privilege of co-chairing the 2016 guidelines as well as this uh, latest revision, which is about to come out. And then phase three has focused really on education and implementation. And I think this phase has mostly been somewhat focused in the United States with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, although there have been, I think, worldwide efforts to um, sort of drive implementation of the guidelines, predominantly through the development of sepsis bundles. There was an earlier session in the Congress about WHO guideline development, and I'll just go through this, this slide very briefly about to highlight that the methodology of how to develop guidelines is rigorous, and it hinges and starts with published evidence um, and looking at individual studies, looking at recent high-quality systematic reviews, summarizing that evidence, developing evidence profiles that explicitly consider the quality of evidence, putting that into an evidence decision framework, having a panel discussion, formulating a recommendation, voting on it, that then finally gets to the publication of guidelines process and then the dissemination process from that. And so this is really the framework that we're using within the Surviving Sepsis Campaign to develop recommendations. And when we get, have heard so much fascinating work about what the evidence is that's coming out of low and middle income countries, I think as we move forward in the guideline development process, we will see more and more published studies coming from low and middle income countries that inform our guideline recommendations, which are really probably gonna be the, the really foundational key to develop guidelines that are representative of the global burden of sepsis. So this is what we do, we end up with recommendations. And I think it asks the question though, when we go through this process, 
do we end up with recommendations that are feasible or even appropriate for patients in low and middle income countries? And we'll hear more about that, I think, later in the session, particularly from Chev and Jacob around, do these recommendations need to be adapted for patients in different resource settings? And I think the obvious argument to us is, of course, yes, they do need to be adapted to different settings. We are issuing these predominantly based on the literature and the published evidence as we see it. So if we don't see published evidence about how these guideline recommendations or how these treatments may um, impact patients differently in differently resource settings, it's very hard to incorporate that into the formal recommendation. So I just put some examples up here of recommendations that may not apply across the across populations and across different resource settings. So on the left-hand side of this slide is the 2012 recommendation about initial fluid resuscitation, which most of us may remember um, incorporates uh, using a protocolized quantitative resuscitation of patients with sepsis-induced tissue hypoperfusion. So sort of the early goal-directed therapy approach. We then changed that in 2016 to recommend um, 30 milliliters per kilo as initial fluid resuscitation, followed by frequent reassessment. And our reassessment remarks are pretty complex and they may be hard to adapt in multiple environments using multiple physiologic variables, multiple monitoring techniques, as well as non-invasive or invasive monitoring as available. So you can imagine that in different resource settings, this may be very difficult to apply, as well as it may have different um, levels of appropriateness depending on what, what supports you have available to you. So Andy Rhodes, who's the co-chair of the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines um, from the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, um, together with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign leadership, the leadership of ESICM and the leadership of SCCM, we came together and we said, when we're putting together this next upcoming revision, we think it's really important to make, at the very least, iterative process in making a guidelines panel that is more representative of where sepsis happens. And we think that as we go through this, and this is not a sort of a one step process, as we go through this process, we anticipate we'll, we'll end up with guidelines that are more and more representative of the global burden of sepsis and more and more, I think, feasible and appropriate for people to implement in differently resource settings. So I want to just highlight um, a couple things about the current, so this is, and it's labeled 2020, and I realize we're now in 2021, so the guidelines are coming out soon. Um, the panel makeup, I think, has changed substantially over time. Um, we now have uh, 37 men and 16 women on a panel. And when you look at the regions that are represented, we have three panelists from Africa, we have five panelists from Asia, we have 10 panelists from Europe, two from the Middle East, we have 25 from North America, which is very heavily represented, four from Oceania and four from South America. So I think we're doing a better job uh, in terms of making sure that the panel really reflects the expertise that's out there. There's still a lot of progress to go. Um, but I think if we compare these this over time, it has been significant steps from that. When we put together the current panel in the adult group, we have six work groups, and we, Andy and I, in our team assignments, ensured that we have at least one panelist from a low and middle income country on each group so that that very, very valuable, important perspective is never lost. It's not a separate group. It's embedded and integrated within the entire guidelines panel so that hopefully some voice 
recognizing low and middle income countries are also not homogenous, but recognizing that that voice is always represented in, in all of the discussions. Everybody on this will know text Kasoon, of course, and I think the Thriving Substance Campaign Guidelines for Children did a really nice job in doing some of this very explicit recognition that guidelines must be adapted based on local resource availability. And I just want to read this, this passage from the introduction to these guidelines. It says, these guidelines were largely developed without consideration of healthcare resources, with some specific exceptions, for example, fluid resuscitation. Medical care for children with septic shock and other sepsis-associated organ dysfunction is necessarily carried out within the confines of locally available resources. These guidelines should constitute a general scheme of, quote, best practice, but that translation to treatment algorithms or bundles or standards of care will need to account for variation in the availability of local health care resources. And I think this passage really nicely in, sort of summarizes that guidelines are not a one-size-fits-all for every resource setting. And we are taking, making our best efforts to pull together information, the best evidence as we see it, to then formulate recommendations that can be interpreted as best practice, but absolutely need to be adapted based on local resources. And there are a couple, if you go to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign website, there are a couple infographics about application of the resuscitation algorithm for children and the fluid and vasoactive inotropic management algorithm for children that I think do a nice job of, of explicitly giving some guidance about different resource settings. So I wanna highlight here the on the fluid and vasoactive inotrope management algorithm for children, there are actually distinct arms for when a healthcare system has intensive care available for children and when you're in a healthcare system that does not have access to intensive care for children with adaptations to the recommendations uh, in that setting, specifically mostly in this in with regards to fluid management. So I, I hope you'll feel like I do that we've made some progress in the surviving sepsis campaign from that it is a work in progress. There's a lot left to go. So in terms of where are we going from here? Within the surviving sepsis campaign, I think about this in, in you know, we're talking a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion. And, and to me, I think that means somewhat can be translated to representation. So who who's invited? Who's on this panel? It's a little bit about ownership. So how is the panel structured? Who's in leadership positions within this panel? And then engagement. So who, who are the really active participants who, remember when we have a group, right? Not everybody speaks up quite as much. Not everybody's voice is, is or as sort of as eager to have their voice heard. And so I think I see Andy and my role and the future co-chairs as helping to incorporate everybody's voice into this. And then I think the most important piece of this, which is not on this slide, is the work that is being done by presenters at this Congress, by attendees at this Congress, by the organizers of this Congress, to advance the quality and quantity of research in sepsis that's coming out of low and middle income settings, so that then we can take that information and incorporate it into guidelines and produce a better, more broadly applicable global guideline. So with that, I'd like to just say thank you again for the opportunity to be here. It's, it's my distinct pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Laura, for the great presentation. Uh, I just want to highlight one important point. Yesterday, there was a, a very interesting presentation about equity 
to access to care. And the speakers highlight the difference between equality and equity. And I think you, you really highlighted very well that the Surviving Substance Campaign now uh, steering committee are well representative from different level of countries that will bring the perspective of low middle income countries that, as you said, one size not fit all. So I can't see any questions from the group uh, of the participants who is listening to this fascinated presentations. But I would like to, to ask you, uh, about uh, exactly when you start to have more input from representative and the committees, with that, did you find any actually change in the grounds related to these guidelines? Yeah, that's a great question, Maha. And I, I think you know we we stick very closely to grade methodology um, mm -hmm. in the development of the guidelines recommendation, and you'll remember that there's a lot of different factors that go into to grade methodology, right? That determine the level of certainty around a recommendation and as well as the quality of evidence around that recommendation. Yeah. And several of those, a lot of those considerations are things like, is this a feasible recommendation? Are there issues with equity? Are there issues with access to this, access to this therapy? And, and so we did, you'll find when we release these new guidelines that some of recommendations have been downgraded in terms of the level of certainty or the level, the quality of evidence and the strength of the recommendation because of input on the, from a more diverse panel that says, you know what, this doesn't apply to patients outside of well-resourced environments. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Laura. Uh, it's my immense pleasure to introduce the next speaker, Dr. Janet Diaz. She's going to talk about the role of WHO in developing COVID-19 guidelines. Uh, Dr. Diaz is a known uh, scientist and a medical researcher. She's a specialized in pulmonary critical care. Her uh, clinical experience or her degree is from University of California, San Francisco. She then completed her training in uh, University of California. California, San Francisco, became the medical director for medical ICU there. She's a clinical professor, as well as known leader, national and international global leader for patient safety and clinical teaching. She is the chairperson for WHO emergency program for emerging pathogen disease such as COVID-19 and Ebola. She's one of the very inspiring female uh, scientists and leader over the globe. It's my immense pleasure to introduce Dr. Diaz. Thank you. That was a very kind introduction and uh, good evening, uh, good afternoon, <laughs> good morning to colleagues. Um, so it is my pleasure to, uh, to present on behalf of WHO the updates on our clinical practice guidelines uh, for therapeutics and COVID-19. And as, as was already stated, um, uh, I am uh, thankful, I am grateful to the, uh, to the meeting uh, coordinators uh, for this invitation. So how to make guidelines during a pandemic? Um, we, knew, we still know that even though it's improved, the current practices to treat COVID-19 continue to be variable, reflecting some continued uncertainty around the treatments. We all want uh, a life-saving pill for COVID-19, and we have not yet achieved that. So um, throughout the pandemic, everyone is very clearly aware of the various uh, therapeutics that have been used, unproven, um, most of them uh, to treat COVID-19 and practices changing and regional variation in that. 
We also know the good news about this pandemic has been that there's been numerous randomized clinical trials, uh, many robust, large platform trials that have been going on around the world, and other smaller randomized trials also, all of them generating evidence at a rapid speed. And this evidence has been communicated uh, in different formats uh, with uh, readouts on a daily basis almost through various mechanisms such as press releases, preprints, and of course, peer review publication. And this has made our job very, very complicated because we're trying to take this evidence generation and make it a recommendation. So at WHO, we have a standardized approach to making guidelines. Um, however, in the past, a guideline from WHO would take almost one to two years to make. And so now we were tasked with making guidelines in a much shorter time frame. So rapidly doing this, we set some trigger thresholds. So we would say we would trigger a new guideline or a new recommendation if there was sufficient RCT evidence, randomized control evidence from high-quality evidence synthesis, so potentially more than 2,000 patients and more than 50 events, and that this would be relevant to a global audience. So if you look at this slide, evidence generation, we rely on RCTs for the therapeutic guidelines. We look at patient-important outcomes that I'll describe, and also geographical implementation. For the evidence synthesis, of course, synthesis, systematic reviews. And we have two approaches. One is a living network meta-analysis, the other prospective meta-analysis that I'll describe. The third is drafting the recommendations. We use grade, but we look at values and preferences, certainty of evidence, and subgroup analysis. And then the dissemination, how we publish these guidelines in order for them to be used globally by various platforms. And this is an iterative process. We have a living guideline here at WHO, the living guideline for COVID therapeutics and for clinical management. And that means that it gets updated on a regular basis based on evidence generation. So monitoring and synthesis, so innovations. Uh, we have three um, concurrent uh, systematic reviews that are in place that inform our guidelines. One you can see on our website is a uh, collaboration between WHO, Cochrane, and many others that are constantly updating every day a systematic review and meta-analysis on various therapeutics, and that can be found on our website. Those are published studies, or at least preprint studies. The second in the middle is an example of a prospective meta-analysis, so that's actually convening with principal investigators of studies that are ongoing, trying to aggregate data during, uh, before the publications have occurred in order for us to expedite evidence uh, synthesis uh, aggregation of data and informing a GDG. And that's an example that we have done for the corticosteroids uh, guideline we wrote in September and what we're doing currently for IL-6 um, blockers. And the third is a living network meta-analysis and that is published by our collaborators uh, that provide um, continued uh, evidence synthesis of all trials in a network meta-analysis perspective and it's published in the BMJ. So these are the three forms of systematic reviews that we use to inform our guidelines um, on a regular basis. What else do we do? We have pre-specified patient important outcomes. So when we write a guideline, we look at the evidence as how it affects what patients would have wanted to see. So we have two rankings of patient, of patient important outcomes, one for inpatient. So as you can see, death being the most important, need for invasive ventilation, the second, duration of invasive ventilation, the next. And then for outpatients, admission to hospital being the most highly rated, then death, then quality of life. 
So these we develop on a regular basis. We survey our GDG panel to make sure that we're not looking at the outcomes that the investigators actually made in their studies. We actually look at outcomes that are patient-important outcomes, and that's how we look at the studies. We have pre-specified values and preferences. So we do discuss with our GDG, our guideline development panel, what is important for those persons that will have COVID-19? How, how will they look at this data? And so again, with those discussions, we've looked at mortality will be the outcome of most importance for patients and has uh, concurred with our prioritization. And we also look at see, so most patients would be reluctant to use a medication for which the evidence left high uncertainty regarding effects on outcomes listed above. But we also acknowledge that there may be different values and preferences amongst different communities. So we try to get to that when we make our guidelines. We use the GRADE approach, uh, WHO Handbook for Guideline Development is, is a published document. But again, looking at uh, randomized control trials um, as the highest uh, quality evidence or with the highest confidence of results. But then we do downgrade evidence from RCTs if there is risk of bias. For example, if it's an unblinded platform trial, we've had, we've had issues with that. Um, if there is uh, inconsistency, if there is uh, indirectness, so um, if there's publication bias. So, so there's a standard approach that we use with our methods team. And then, of course, grading the certainty, the confidence you have in the findings or the estimates. But what we do like to show the guideline development panel is a relatively straightforward summary of findings tables. And this you can find in our guidelines. So here you can see the outcome on the left, which is mortality, the outcome that we're looking at as the highest priority. You can see the relative risk clearly that, um, stated, how many patients inform that relative risk, how many studies. And then you can see the absolute effect estimates between the two groups. And then the certainty, and this is very important. So how certain are we with that outcome? And here you can see moderate and then why it's been uh, downgraded from high for the risk of bias. And then a plain text summary. So systematic, this is for corticosteroids, for example probably reduces the risk of 28-day mortality in patients with critical COVID-19. So this is what we present. So we take the evidence, we synthesize, and then we make a simplified summary of findings table that we show to the panel. Our panel is an independent panel from WHO. WHO has a steering committee of which I lead, but members of that steering committee represent various departments within WHO in Geneva, as well as within our regional offices. Then we select external clinical and methodological chairs. We have a methodological support team. And just to give uh, my colleagues from the MAGIC ecosystem um, some uh, acknowledgement here for being uh, well, wonderful partners uh, in supporting us methodologically. And then we have a panel. The panel member more or less is about 38 to 42 experts. We have strict regional representation. That means all WHO regions are equally represented in the panel membership. We have strict gender balance between um, males and females, and we have uh, we try to attain different areas of specialty, from primary care to critical care to infectious disease. We have an ethics equity expert, and then patient partners on our panel. So, what do we do? We present the panel the evidence, and then we make a, a recommendation. And we've tried to simplify the evidence to decision framework. So, what makes a strong recommendation? Benefits clearly away risks, hassle cost, or in the other direction, risks, hassle cost outweigh the benefit. 
And then when do we downgrade to a conditional recommendation or as some people say, a weak recommendation? Maybe the ups and downs are balanced. Maybe the values and preferences reduce. Maybe it's the cost and practical limitations. Maybe it's the low certainty evidence, which is one of the strongest reasons why we would downgrade a recommendation. As you know, interpreting the recommendations from a patient, clinician, and policy level are well, have been well described. So a strong recommendation, meaning that most patients would want that treatment course. For clinicians, most of them would want to give that course. And for policymakers, that this can become part of their policy, a marker for performance indicators, and a conditional recommendation being a little bit less in all those aspects. So our, our publication platforms include the WHO website. So we have three um, publications for guidelines, therapeutics in COVID-19. Its last published update was in March 31st. We have the clinical management guideline, which discusses supportive care interventions and a comprehensive care approach for COVID-19. And then we have the guideline on drugs to prevent COVID-19. These are transformed and also published in BMJ as rapid recommendations. And you can see our simplified infographic where, unfortunately, the reality is right now we just have one strong recommendation for the use of corticosteroids in patients with severe and critical COVID-19. And for the others, uh, we have recommendations against their use, strong against the use of um, uh, hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, uh, conditional against the use of remdesivir, and uh, a recommendation for ivermectin that we recently published to not use except under clinical trials. Just to note that we are looking at the IL-6 blockers next week with our GDG panel and hope to have a recommendation within a few weeks after that. Our comprehensive clinical guidelines is also a living guideline, but the data that supports the living guidelines is a little bit more indirect in its approach. So here we've emphasized doing the basics well, and we did publish the last update on this in January of this year. And you can see there was a different potpourri of types of recommendations here um, that we looked at uh, the use of prognostic models for, uh, for affecting medical decision-making, and we made a recommendation, uh, conditional recommendations not to use prognostic models over clinical um, uh, clinician uh, um, decision-making. We made a conditional recommendation to use pulse oximetry, pulse oximetry monitoring at home uh, as part of a package of care in patients who were at high risk for severe disease and being managed at home. We, used, we made a conditional recommendation for the use of awake-prone positioning in patients with severe COVID-19 that were in the hospital on supplemental oxygen or non-invasive, a conditional recommendation for thromboprophylaxis dosing of anticoagulation rather than intermediate or therapeutic dosing in patients hospitalized with COVID-19, and a conditional um, recommendation for the use of existing care bundles um, uh, delivered at, uh, in patients uh, that are locally chosen by the hospital or the ICU. So as you can see, this is, this is a, the, the, the clinical management guideline is, um, is uh, getting updated as well on a regular basis, and we hope to do the update next one in uh, late uh, June. How do we publish our guidelines? You can find our guidelines on uh, various different types of uh, uh, scenarios. We have the MAGIC app which is our collaboration with the MAGIC ecosystem, which is an evidence ecosystem, and that can be found on the website, and all our guidelines are in their um, application, which is a very easy-to-navigate uh, website uh, and shows quite a few infographics that make the guidelines easy to read. 
Uh, we also publish our guidelines on our WHO Academy app, which can be downloaded in iPhone uh, or in a Google Play. And we transform our guidelines into a training course that's on openwho.org. And here you can see on the bottom left, the release of our clinical management rehab guidelines um, uh, for COVID-19. But before I finish, I don't, I don't want to forget the other aspects of clinical management that are essential to provide safe care for patients with COVID-19 or patients with sepsis, of course. Safe structures for COVID care. So the importance of having correct engineering control, um, architectural design of your care units. So we have uh, products about how to do this for um, treatment centers for severe acute respiratory infection for community facilities and a recent product on the roadmap to improve and ensure good indoor ventilation in the context of COVID-19. So this is highly important um, piece of work, especially for centers where there is in low middle income countries, as, as uh, Laurie was discussing, where the facilities may not have infectious disease units or, you know, uh, rooms for um, airborne precautions, and really the importance of still maintaining good engineering and architectural controls for infection prevention and control. Oxygen scale up in biomedical devices, again, in order to implement good quality, safe, um, safe uh, care for patients with severe critical COVID-19. The scarcity of oxygen in some settings has been highlighted in this pandemic. So WHO is committed to improving the availability and accessibility of oxygen. Um, so we have uh, multiple um, guidelines here on the priority medical devices for COVID-19, giving technical specifications to support member states in the purchase of medical equipment, uh, technical specifications on um, PSA plants, on you know, large oxygen generation plants, and, technical um, and then an inventory tool for biomedical equipment that uh, facilities can use to check how much do I have and what do I need to procure in order to, um, uh, to get my facility ready for more patients with COVID-19? This is a big piece of work, not the topic of this conversation, but I think a hugely important topic uh, for safe care of patients with severe um, sepsis, uh, with sepsis or other forms of uh, critical disease. And finally, our clinical data platform. This is a data platform that we are promoting uh, to inform the clinical characterization and management of uh, patients with COVID-19 around the world, a tool for monitoring implementation. And currently, as you can see, we actually have most of our enrollments from the Afro region. Our, our point here is to describe the clinical disease around the world, not just from countries that are publishing their studies um, and maybe overrepresented in some of the publications in peer review, but trying to give access to all countries to contribute clinical, anonymized clinical data, and then we can aggregate and um, and start to describe the disease uh, globally or by region. And this is an ongoing piece of work. So with that, evidence to recommendations requires massive collaboration at all phases of the process to be efficient, fast, and trustworthy. I think at this point, we're about at four to six weeks from evidence generation to a recommendation, and we try to do as fast as we can. The implementation of guidelines into clinical practice, I think, is an area to improve and monitor over time. I think this is where we're trying to figure out how can we best know if our guidelines are being used? Are patients actually getting steroids if they should be? Are patients actually getting oxygen if they should be? And then remember that the COVID clinical care package is to be holistic and multidisciplinary and needs to be um, implemented by trained staff, safe structures, ensuring sufficient supplies and systems to do the basics well.
So with that, thank you for the opportunity and also just to thank the big team behind me that's actually uh, helps uh, do all this work. So thank you. Thank you so much, Janet. Excellent presentation. Uh, I have a question from the, uh, the participant. Does WHO have enough power to encourage or mandate uh, resources to provide low middle income country to help them with implementation of these guidelines? Or it is the responsibility for low middle income country member states to implement these guidelines. So it's basically about the collaboration. So I think it's the question was about collaboration and funding. So I think yes and yes. I'm going to answer this question with a with a who's ever working in low middle income countries now. I want everyone to be, and I didn't put this on the slide, that the Global Fund, there is a funding mechanism right now for the Global Fund COVID-19 um, uh, funding mechanism. So usually the Global Fund funds TB, malaria, and HIV. For this funding mechanism that's actually ongoing, started just a week ago, they will be funding COVID-19 response. In the COVID-19 response, the pillar of the response case management is fundable. So if you're at a country and you're working with the Ministry of Health, um, there is possibilities to get funding for the implementation of therapeutics, of improving clinical management, as well as for oxygen scale-up and access to biomedical equipment. And so please contact us if, we, if this is something of interest, more interest. I didn't put this into the slide deck, but I think it's an important opportunity for um, people in uh, member states, countries, low-middle-income countries, to invest in um, and improving their COVID-19 response through this funding mechanism. And WHO is available at the country level, regional, and Geneva level to support, uh, to provide technical assistance in that. Over. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, just because of the time, I was having a personal questions, and that was related to COVID-19 and the funding for COVID-19 vaccine for low middle income country. I think you kind of answered it during my colleague questions, the attendees. So thank you so much, Janet and uh, stay tuned for their next presentation. So it's my pleasure to, to introduce Dr. Uh, Suchitra Ranji. I hope I pronounce your name correctly. Uh, Dr. Ranji, she's, a cardiovasc uh, she's gonna talk about cardiovascular management in children with the sepsis dependent context. Uh, Dr. Ranji is a, a pediatric intensivist uh, from India. She got her training in Melbourne and Sydney in Australia. She's the chairperson for Pediatric Intensive Care Chapter at Indian Academy of Pediatric Intensive Care. She's also the vice chair for College of Pediatric Critical Care in India, the chief of pediatric intensive care at Apollo Children's Hospital. Uh, she is the international task force lead for the Pediatric Surviving Substance Campaign Guidelines, as well as the task force member of Pediatric Substance Campaign Guidelines. Uh, she is currently uh, the representative for Asian board directors for the World Federation of Intensive Care of Pediatric Society. Uh, without further ado, please welcome Dr. Ranji. Thank you very much, uh, Maha, and all the organizers of the World Sepsis Congress. It's a pleasure to be uh, participating. So uh, I'm going to be speaking on, I'm going to go really fast because I'm going to be speaking about the cardiovascular management of children and the fact that it might depend on context. And to cover this topic, I have really two main points. I'm going to be talking about the subject of fluids, how, uh, how and what and 
uh, why and why we do not, we may not give fluids, and about vasoactive. So about hypovolemia in sepsis, um, it may be a bit simplistic to assume that the pathophysiology of hypovolemia in septic shock is similar to a pure fluid losing state. It's far more complex. So although the presentation may be quite similar with hypoperfusion, decreased urine output and acidosis, um, the response to uh, fluids may be quite different. So in the setting of sepsis, fluids can improve the cardiac output and blood pressure in some patients. And in these, <clears throat> in these patients, the effects may be sustained in only a few. And in the remaining, um, fluids can vasodilate, can decrease cardiac function and um, increase capillary leak. So whether it's bacteria sepsis or dengue sepsis, <clears throat> fluids can exacerbate a capillary leak situation. So um, basically, fluids can convert or worsen a vasodilatory uh, state, increase leaky capillaries, worsen uh, capillary leak. And the main reason for this may have to do with a glycocalyx. So the glycocalyx is the inner layer of the endothelium. And this can be injured in the setting of sepsis to start with. And when the fluid load, the injury can be exacerbated. And this is a reason why some patients can vasodilate and uh, capillary leak can worsen. Uh, and this might also be the reason why uh, the fluid effect is ill-sustained. So this nice study carried out in the room of um, Royal Melbourne Hospital demonstrated that um, the, there was a nice improvement in the cardiac uh, index five minutes after completion of a fluid bolus. But this, was, this wasn't sustained in the majority. So you can see here, the cardiac index has come right back to the baseline at the end of the hour. So given that fluids uh, have our benefit only a few and the effect may be ill-sustained, but on the other hand, there's a greater need for rescue ventilation, rescue inotropes, and rescue dialysis therapies with longer IC stays. Uh, should we be looking at fluid for all patients, large volume fluid, especially in resource-limited countries or regions where such rescue ICU therapies may not be easily available. So this is a study that we did in both patients, two different populations. We gave fluid to patients after cardiac surgery and also to patients who presented uh, very uh, in the first hour of uh, septic shock, the children with septic shock in the emergency room or ICU. And uh, we found that uh, we found that the uh, response to fluid uh, about a, a third responded with an improved uh, cardiac output, but um, uh, and the majority were 
non-responders. And we also looked at whether the mass, the mean arterial pressure improved or not. And we found that if the mean arterial pressure did not respond, they were more likely to die. So irrespective of whether the cardiac index improved or not, if the mass did not improve after a fluid bolus, they were more likely to die. So what are the implications for clinical practice? In some patients, fluids can vasodilate, and this has to do with the injured glycocalyx, and this can cause a mass as well as a diastolic blood pressure to fall. So even if the cardiac output improves, the MAP can fall. So the lower MAP secondary to vasodilatation can result in lower perfusion pressures to various organs and systems in the body, including vulnerable organs, such as the brain and heart. And the heart especially is dependent the perfusion pressures are dependent on diastolic blood pressure minus the uh, LA pressure, the atrial filling pressure. So this can, a larger volume fluid can cause more detrimental effects on perfusion pressures. So how can we decode? We know that all children behave differently. Some children improve after a fluid bolus. Some patients remove, remain unchanged and some can actually improve. So we need to watch and monitor the clues after a fluid bolus, clues from the response to a fluid bolus. Remember the patient is telling you a story and we need to listen to the entire story carefully. So not just look at the cardiac output or clinical markers of cardiac output, but also the blood pressure markers, such as the mean arterial pressure, diastolic pressure, systolic pressure. And look for features of fluid intolerance, such as worsening lung mechanics and oxygen requirements that can occur even before actual fluid overload, so more correctly called fluid intolerance. So in the event that a child's blood pressure falls or fluid intolerance occurs, we need to consider earlier vasoactive. So coming to, earlier, uh, coming to early vasoactive, it's an alternative approach to large volume fluids, considering that in children, um, they can present with either low uh, systemic vascular resistance or a high systemic, vaso, uh, 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 systemic vascular resistance. And a vasodilatory shock state seems to be more common, irrespective of whether they're cold or warm. Now, uh, given that they are more often vasodilated, the hypovolemia, as we discussed earlier, is more relative. It's not an actual large volume fluid loss. It's just redistributed in the expanded vascular compartment. So given that the fluid, there's a relative hypovolemia due to redistribution, a more physiological way to improve venous return in vasodilated shock might be a low-dose venopressor agent rather than uh, large-volume fluid. So it, uh, there, are, there is a lot of evidence in adult pediatric septic shock and recently in our uh, studies that early vasoactive, such as norepinephrine, can not only 
improve the mean arterial pressure, which is the best known effect, but can also mobilize the expanded vascular compartment and improve the venous return. It can also have beneficial effects of mild anotropy and increased cardiac output. So in our study, uh, comparing the large volume group, which was the ACCM cohort, with the early norepinephrine group in pediatric shock, we found that with neither strategy had much difference in mortality, but the six-hour fluid requirement was dramatically reduced when we used early norepinephrine, and this resulted in lesser days uh, of, of uh, the requirement for invasive ventilation. And finally, because they weren't ventilated, the resources required were less. They were in the ICU for far fewer days. So when we uh, compare fluid boluses and norepinephrine, fluids may be important in fluid losing states when there's absolute hypovolemia. So by all means, if there's a history of diarrhea or vomiting or decreased intake, a small initial fluid bolus may, may be warranted and may help. But after the initial small fluid bolus, we need to remember that fluids improve the cardiac output and blood pressure in a rather small percentage. And this improvement is sustained in less than 10%. In the remaining fluids can worsen lung and organ edema, vasodilate, and decrease organ perfusion pressure and also increase the need for ICU support. Whereas low-dose vasoactives may be a far better strategy in uh, regions where ICU support is limited because it re results in a sustained hemodynamic improvement which is more physiologically appropriate and therefore re results in a lesser need for ICU support. So there's a, a lot of compelling physiological rationale, especially in resource-limited regions. And that's my last slide. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Ranji, for a very informative presentation. Uh, I just, uh, I can't see any questions in the chat box, but people are uh, still asking about uh, some of the questions related to WHO effort, as well as they are uh, basically uh, expressing their co uh, compliments for the lectures. Uh, so uh, my question is, do you find uh, managing children with, the, with, with septic shock at the bedside challenging to educate the mothers or the family of the patient that those patients who are refractory not responding, it could be related to the physiological response of that child to the fluid? Right. So... Um we do educate them that uh, one particular therapy may not work and we, uh, we do a lot of monitoring using bedside echocardiography, lung ultrasound, and also non-invasive cardiac output monitoring. And this starts right from the time they present to the emergency room. So we tell them that we're trying an individualized, very personal approach and we will, and um, depending on what they really require, we would provide that rather than, uh, uh, you know, one strategy fit all kind of approach. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Ranji. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to introduce our uh, next speaker, uh, Dr. Shaven Jacobs. 
Dr. Jacobs is going to talk about the fluid resuscitation in adult, different setting, different strategy. Uh, Dr. Jacob is an infectious disease uh, physician. He's a clinical researcher, uh, as well as lecturer for sepsis research at Liverpool School of Medicine. Uh, he is also the, a consultant for WHO for various working group for clinical management of sepsis and severe illnesses in low resource countries. Uh, he's a secretary general for the African Sepsis Alliance, as well as he supports the activities for improving quality for uh, qu clinical management of severely ill patients in Uganda in collaboration with the Uganda Ministry of Health. Without further ado, Dr. Jacobs for you. Thank you very much for the introduction, uh, Maha, and uh, thanks to the organizers for the opportunity to, to speak today. Um, I'll just say uh, very quickly my uh, disclosures. I have uh, no financial conflicts to disclose. So I've, I've been tasked today to, um, to, to talk about uh, uh, fluid resuscitation guidelines in adults and to consider uh, different settings um, and whether or not there need to be different strategies for those settings. So before I go into addressing that directly, I want to sort of bring us up to speed in terms of some of the fluid management guidelines. And you have already heard from uh, Laura Evans about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline and, uh, and, and the new 2020 guidelines that are, are expected to be out later this year. But since its inception, there has been an evolution of, uh, of guidance on fluid management and with uh, sort of an increase in evidence that's available, there's been more clarity with respect to things like fluid type using, um, so examples being uh, that uh, there, there are now uh, recommendations with moderate quality evidence uh, for the use of crystal, crystalloids over colloids. Um, for the use for initial resuscitation. And there's also strong recommendations with high quality of evidence for the recommendation against the use of hydro, uh, hydroxyethyl starches. In, in also uh, along uh, fluid types, the, the question around balanced versus unbalanced crystalloids has been uh, an ongoing one. Um, and uh, though the, the quality of evidence has been low, Recently, there has been a new data that's contributed to that body of evidence. And here in the right panel, uh, you'll see um, uh, some results from a recently published uh, network meta-analysis. of, uh, And this, this specifically um, addresses 23 trials uh, and uh, almost 15,000 patients of sepsis, which demonstrates an improved survival in patients who receive balanced crystalloids when compared to those who receive saline or colloids. Also evolving has been, uh, though less clear, um, has been with respect to fluid volume. Um, there are recommendations either, these are just exemplar recommendations in terms of initial resuscitation and ongoing resuscitation, where the quality of evidence is, is low, but the recommendations have still been made so in terms of initial resuscitation, for example, um, uh, the administration of at least 30 cc's uh, per kilogram of IV crystalloid fluid given within the first three hours. Uh, also an example for ongoing resus resuscitation with respect to fluid volume, 
it was considering the use of albumin in patients requiring a large volume resuscitation. Um, and though the low quality of uh, the, the evidence is low quality, uh, the recommendations have been made by the surviving subs campaign on, on that topic. Now, on the topic of how to give fluids, this uh, debate around liberal versus restrictive fluid resuscitation strategies continues to be unresolved. Uh, the meta-analysis uh, uh, that with the, with the results on the right panel um, is of nine randomized trials recently published comparing low versus high volumes of resuscitation that found no difference in outcome. And indeed, there are a number of studies, uh, both in high-income countries and low-income countries, that have uh, sort of run the gamut in terms of the, the conclusions there. Um, so uh, we're all familiar with with the early goal directed therapy studies and the subsequent comparison studies. And though uh, they demonstrated uh, uh, that there was no difference in outcome when comparing early goal directed therapy uh, with other strategies, there was not a specific focus on what volume of fluid or when to time the fluid or what kind of clinical variables might, we might use to help with a resuscitation. And indeed, um, if you look at the volume of fluid that was administered in the first 72 hours, whether it be the early goal-directed therapy trial or the process arise and promise trial, the, the, the volumes are relatively high. Um, and so despite the, the, the no difference in outcome, um, these, these trials did have, uh, the patients in those trials did have uh, relatively high volumes of outcome, uh, uh, fluids administered in that early period. When looking at data from Sub-Saharan Africa, um, the FEAST trial, uh, I think many of us will be familiar uh, uh, for this study that had unexpected findings in children. And this was a study across six sites in East Africa, in Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya, comprising 3,600 children with severe febrile illness with a median age of two years who were randomized to receive either a bolus of saline, albumin, or no bolus, and much to many people's surprise, I think, <laughs> is that uh, the, the, the bolus arms were associated with a greater mortality than those patients who had no bolus. And so emerging from that trial were a number of questions about whether or not the setting or the context or the particular patients uh, were important. Um, are there what are the implications for other settings? And what about adults? And in this next slide, I, I, I report um, uh, the results of the SP, uh, SSSP2 trial, which was also conducted in Sub-Saharan Africa, this time in Southern Africa and Zambia, and this time involving adult patients who were randomized to two different treatment arms. One was a protocolized resuscitation strategy, and the other one was, a usual, was usual care. And um, as you would expect, there was a greater volume of fluid resuscitation in the protocolized resuscitation arm uh, versus uh, the usual care. As well, there was a greater percentage of patients who had vasopressors used. And despite these differences, the mortality was still greater in hospital for patients who received the protocolized resuscitation versus that uh, those who received usual care. So. Uh, Given that body of evidence, I think that, that that's supportive for the, the idea that the question around the, uh, what strategy to use for adult sepsis patients with fluid, uh, for fluid uh, resuscitation, 
um, it, there, that there's equipoise there. And currently underway, there are, are trials in the pipeline. Um, the classic trial uh, is, is being conducted by the Scandinavian Critical Care Trials Group. And that's looking at the conservative versus liberal approaches uh, to the management of patients with septic shock in ICUs across Europe. Um, the Clover's trial, also underway, um, is looking at a liberal uh, uh, fluid resuscitation strategy versus the early use, early administration of vasopressors in the management of adult sepsis. Both of these trials uh, should be uh, complete or, or projected to complete in the next year. So hopefully in the coming years, we'll have uh, some additional evidence to kind of inform our approach to fluid resuscitation. So now that you've got the sort of update on the, on the background of uh, fluid management guidelines, I'd like to sort of take us to, to try and understand how these guidelines might be applicable in settings where they weren't necessarily initially targeted. So, these, so, so our group, uh, conducted this systematic review of 10 guidelines for fluid management of adults with sepsis in sub-Saharan Africa. And our main conclusions from this uh, systematic review was that um, almost all the guidelines were universally derived from evidence in high-income countries, and that the widely used available international guidelines contain disparate recommendations on IV fluid use, they lack specificity, and are largely unattainable in low-income countries given available resources. And these findings complement uh, a, a previously conducted study um, that looked at the feasibility of implementing the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines in Africa. And this was a survey um, that was conducted uh, across 185 hospitals from 24 countries, and it showed a massive disparity in the number of African hospitals who were equipped uh, to implement sub Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines compared to those uh, in high-income countries. And really, this reflects a number of challenges in delivering care to patients, particularly for critically ill ones who, uh, uh, who have sepsis. And, and, and these challenges are, are really considerations that um, need to be taken when thinking about guidance. So for, uh, first, uh, uh, with the limited um, resources, there's limited recourse to mechanical ventilation and uh, ICU level care. And that translates into the type of guidance that you might provide an uh, aggressive versus less aggressive fluid resuscitation or the ability to provide pressors for extended period of time um, through central uh, versus peripheral lines. There's also challenges in monitoring, uh, whether those be through static variables or dynamic variables that look at fluid responsiveness. And finally, um, just to touch upon uh, uh, some topics that were raised earlier today around the importance of pathogens and thinking about the pathophysiology that might be unique to those pathogens. For instance, TB, uh, bloodstream infections, um, or dengue or malaria. But there are data that we have, and these last few slides will, uh, I'll, I'll just go through. There's some data and recommendations um, that can be used for uh, applicability to uh, the settings in which I'm talking about. The, the Andromeda shock, a randomized control trial, was conducted in uh, five South American countries. And though these were uh, focused on ICU level care, um, uh, like I said, there's applicability to, to low income settings as well. The, the trial randomized patients to receive one of two uh, uh, strategies based on two different resuscitation targets. The first being normalizing capillary refill time 
the other being normalizing or decreasing lactate levels. And the primary outcome, 28-day mortality, um, was found to be more favorable in the capillary refill time group, though uh, the, the difference between the two arms was not statistically uh, significant um, as, the, as the trial um, did not reach its posterior probability to, uh, to demonstrate superiority. In addition, secondary outcomes like organ dysfunction at 72 hours uh, was found to be statistically significant in favor of the capillary refill time. So, and, and that information aligns well with the, uh, the Global Intensive Care Working Group of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, where in their updated recommendations for sepsis and septic shock management, suggest using bedside tools for assessing tissue perfusion, capillary refill testing being one of them. They also offer other options like the skin modeling scores, which is, is displayed there on the right panel. As well, they provide some pragmatic approaches to conducting passive leg raises to assess fluid responsiveness. And that is also sort of demonstrated there in the right panel. So to end, I just wanna leave us with a few take home points. The first is, and this is uh, quoting some sage advice from uh, Professor Myberg in Australia, uh, fluid should be administered with the same caution that is used with any intravenous drug. At present, especially in low income settings where you don't have the recourse uh, to ICU care, or mechanical ventilation or, or uh, 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 vasopressor use, um, slow and steady fluid administration with frequent monitoring um, is, is important uh, unless new evidence suggests otherwise. Number two, more research is, is definitely needed in research constrained settings on sepsis management, and particularly with, to help us understand the differences across key subgroups, whether that be HIV infection, malnutrition, NCDs, and the care of patients in and outside of the ICU. And finally, Evidence-based guidelines for settings that are not in high-income countries should strike a balance between achieving universal standards and tailoring them to address context-specific differences. And to sum that up, low resources should not translate to low-quality care. So with that, thank you again, and I'll take any thank questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Jacobs. I can't agree more. Low resource doesn't mean suboptimum care. So there's a question from the audience. Do you think that we are fearful now in terms of fluid resuscitation and we are using too small amount of fluids and that lead to lung ischemia? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, uh, especially given the, the occasionally conflicting evidence that has come out um, from, from various research studies. Uh, I, I, I think that um, in terms of the strategies that are being used, it is quite heterogeneous in settings. Here in Uganda, where I live and work, um, you know, that's one, that was one of the sites of the FEAST trial. Uh, and it's also a site uh, where we have conducted some observational and intervention studies on, on fluid management. And uh, there, there is not necessarily a consistent uh, guidance on how, uh, how to approach fluid resuscitation for either kids or adults. Um, and as a result, I think it ends up being a uh, sort of uh, a clinician per clinician approach to how management is addressed. And so then, so more, so that to me then translates into 
um, they're not being sort of a systematic approach that would say that we're under resuscitating patients or over resuscitating patients. Yeah. Um, and I, I acknowledge that I'm, I'm speaking in the context of, uh, of here in Uganda and other uh, similar settings, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure now to move to the next presentation. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Fernando Zambiri. Uh, Dr. Fernando is going to talk about antibiotic in the first hour for everyone, everywhere. Uh, Dr. Fernando is uh, a physician uh, who graduated from University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. He completed his training in critical care medicine in 2010 and obtained his PhD in 2017. He joined the Healthcare Institute of Research and currently he is the principal investigator for basic trial, uh, a large randomized trial that assessed balance fluid for critically ill patients. Uh, it encompasses 10,000 critically ill patients. He is also the investigator lead for the cohort study that looked for nosocomial sepsis attribute to mortality and risk factors, acquiring uh, multidrug resistant infections. So without further ado, for Dr. Fernando. Thank you. Thank you all very much uh, for, for an invitation to be here. It's a true, true pleasure. Uh, so thank you for the introduction. Um, this is a very tricky topic here. Uh, we are going to talk about whether uh, earlier antibiotics is always better. So this is a, always, you know, a, a very hot question. And of course, uh, we have to rely on observational data because, of course, we will never have uh, equipoise to randomize patients to receive antibiotics uh, later or earlier. So we have to rely on what we have. Uh, so, uh, before I move on, I have uh, some conflicts of interest, uh, especially uh, regarding support for clinical trials, but I have never received uh, direct compensation fees from any uh, pharmaceutical company, only grant funding. So, uh, what's the mission control here? So, we are going to discuss a little bit about the previous assumptions that we make uh, on uh, time to antibiotics and outcomes of infected patients, right? So, it makes sense to assume a lot of things. It makes sense to believe that earlier is better, uh, but is, is, is that correct? So uh, is that as straightforward as it seems or not? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to show uh, the results of the Latin American Sepsis Institute database regarding a time to uh, antibiotics after organ dysfunction and outcome. So I promise I won't take more than 10 minutes of your time. So, uh, of course, uh, the rationale for early antibiotics is that, of course, you can reduce bacterial load and uh, eventually hamper the inflammatory response. Uh, this is kind of a naive assumption because we actually never know when infection started. And uh, we have the belief that uh, the sicker the patient, the greater the benefit uh, that the patient will have uh, receiving early antibiotics. And, and, and this assumption uh, is, uh, let's say, uh, uh, rooted on the belief that there is a significant interaction between uh, time to antibiotics and uh, illness severity and outcome. So uh, both the assumptions, they make a lot of sense, but we actually don't know if uh, they hold up uh, in, in, in bedside practice. So there have been some papers on this. So this is a very interesting paper using uh, United American data on time to antibiotics and outcomes in patients with Sears uh, and septic shock, showing that, well, it, it 
kind of increases and then it, it, it uh, reaches a plateau, then increases again. Uh, we, a couple of years ago, uh, Inacio Martin Leckes uh, published a paper on time to, on uh, appropriate antibiotic use and outcomes in patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia. And this was very interesting because uh, for patients with shock, uh, the, uh, the use of inappropriate antibiotics was not associated with uh, higher mortality. So this means that perhaps some patients are uh, too sick to be treated or uh, are beyond, let's say, a, a salvage point uh, where antibiotics will not make uh, much of, uh, will not improve overall care. So of course, uh, in the end of the day, we can make several hypotheses. So the, the fact size for uh, time to antibiotics may be constant, may increase over time, may have some splines, uh, can be constant, but can be higher for patients with more severe disease, can have several different slopes according to different diseases, and can have spines, and spines may be lost uh, in more severe patients. So we actually don't know uh, what is the effect size and how the effect size behaves. And most analysis, usually they add time to antibiotics as a continuous linear variable or as a categorical variable, so we decided to explore this a little bit more using the Latin American Sepsis Institute database. So this is a Brazilian, this is a Brazilian data. So uh, this includes a lot of public and private hostels in Brazil. As you can imagine, Brazil is a very uh, unequal country. So uh, we are dealing with uh, patients that were admitted to very poor uh, public hostels and uh, some premier private hostels. But nevertheless, uh, uh, around more than half of the patients here came from public hostels and. This is probably very representative of care in a middle-income country. So in the past five years, we had uh, around uh, 1,100,000 suspected infection cases in 120 uh, hospitals. Uh, we have performed some filters, you know, uh, all patients, all hospitals that approved uh, use of data, patients that had eventually confirmed infection, that had one organ failure, uh, that had, you know, unknown outcome that uh, were not using antibiotics before organ failure. And then we reached the sample size of 43,000 patients. And the question here was, uh, is time to antibiotics uh, truly associated with a higher mortality? And if so, how does it interact with uh, organ dysfunction at uh, diagnosis, right? So we are not just talking about time from sepsis diagnosis to treatment to antibiotics, but time since inception of organ failure to antibiotics. So that should account for, uh, and when this was performed in the LASI database, we, uh, in, in the CRF, sites reported when uh, the uh, organ dysfunction was first documented in charts. So sometimes patients arrive at the hospital with organ dysfunction, Sometimes they developed organ dysfunction during hostel stay. But the question here was whether uh, this time from infection, uh, from dysfunction diagnosis due to sepsis and uh, receiving antibiotics was associated with uh, worse outcomes and whether it was related uh, or uh, interacted with the number of failing organs. So overall we had, uh, uh, 43,000 patients, mortality was uh, around 12,000. So this was not, uh, there's nothing actually new here. When we have, when we look at the number of organ dysfunctions, we see that uh, the most common organ dysfunction was lactate, 
then respiratory dysfunction, and then uh, combinations between oral organs dysfunctions possible, including respiratory, hemodynamic, acute kidney injury, neurological dysfunction, and coagulation. But of course, respiratory dysfunction and abnormal lactate are the most common uh, dysfunctions that we found. This was rather similar regarding of infection source, and there was no association between infection source uh, and number of dysfunctions and time to antibiotics. So uh, all the sites were kind of, you know, uh, motivated, and most patients received antibiotics in the first hour, hour and a half after, uh, this, after uh, the dysfunction was diagnosed. Uh, when we have a look at the uh, mortality and uh, number of the organ dysfunctions, one to six, what we see is a trend where uh, it tends to increase until a number of five organ dysfunction, then it tends to plateau. And this made us model, we uh, built two different models, one uh, including age, infection size, time to antibiotics after organ dysfunction, and one alternative uh, machine learning model and we tested those models to check whether there was or not an association between antibiotics uh, time from dysfunction to antibiotic use and outcome. What we found was that regardless of the source, of course, uh, urinary infection uh, it has a lower mortality than other infections. But of course, for patients that present with six or seven organ dysfunctions, outcome is very poor, right? So uh, mortality is above 90. Uh, and for other uh, sources, uh, there was a small increase with the predicted mortality uh, as uh, the longer the time from dysfunction diagnosis uh, to uh, antibiotics. And that resulted in a very interesting pattern. So for less severe patients, the odds ratios for increasing time to, uh, to, for mortality was higher, let's say it was steeper, than for patients with more organ failure. So this is the contrary of what we usually believe that, well, the more severe the patient, the higher the benefit of early antibiotics. So that's not quite true, at least from our data. So even patients with only one single organ dysfunction, and that can be only a high lactate, uh, may have a very important benefit of receiving early antibiotics. And of course, patients that have six or seven uh, organ failures do not have uh, as much benefit as patients with fewer organ failures. This was also true a, a long time. So if you miss uh, uh, 30 minutes, the odds ratio is still higher for patients with uh, less organ failure. And when we plug this into a, a machine learning model and we check which variables are more important to determine patient outcome uh, after infection. So the number of dysfunction is the premier or the more important determinant than age, then time to antibiotics, and then comorbidities and other uh, measurements. And this model results in very similar uh, results from the uh, traditional uh, generalized additive model. And we see once again that when we have six or seven organ dysfunctions, both five organ dysfunctions, the curve uh, from time to antibiotics and mortality becomes less steep. And it was a very, it was very steep for patients with one, two, or three organ failures. So uh, in brief, uh, infection is a problem and uh, waiting for the patient to become very sick to give antibiotics is probably not the best way. And of course, uh, this concept that the more severe the patient, the higher the mortality and the higher the benefit of early antibiotics is probably not correct. So probably even small organ dysfunctions such as a high lactate or a normal respiratory rate or something 
are enough to trigger a response. And if we act fast in patients at low risk, the populational benefit can be much greater than if we focus on very, very, very high risk patients. That was my last slide. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Fernando. Uh, there's a question from the audience, how to perform a diagnostic in order to start antibiotic? Oh, well, that, that's a, uh, you know, the, the, the best question, right? So if, if we know that, uh, it, our life will be much easier. So uh, what I can say is that based on our data, if you suspect uh, of a severe infection of sepsis, uh, you have to give antibiotics earlier uh, during uh, the follow-up. So you do not have to wait for a test to give antibiotics. And actually our data suggests that even if you don't have organ dysfunction, I did not brought this to present here, uh, the benefit of giving antibiotics earlier after suspicion of sepsis is more clear than if you wait for overt organ failure, right? So I believe that for sepsis, especially in, in, in resource-constrained scenarios, it's better to give antibiotics while you do the follow-up and while you do, uh, you check a possible diagnosis and then eventually uh, stopping antibiotics than waiting for a biomarker or for a, a, a specific lab test. So we have to be proactive in terms of giving antibiotics early, earlier and eventually removing it earlier uh, if it's not infection, then waiting for a biomarker or organ failure. Thank you so much, Dr. Fernando. Uh, I believe the key of this session is that early antibiotic is linked to better outcome. We know that the best management of sepsis depends on two major things, early detection and then early interventions. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Fernando. Uh, I would like to move for the sake of time for the next speaker. Our next speaker is Dr. Emmanuel Natsubo. Uh, Dr. Natsubo is a consultant of infectious disease as well as he's the chief of infectious diseases at Sheikh Shakhbout Al-Nhayan Medical City in Abu Dhabi. He's currently the chair of uh, African Sepsis Alliance, as well as a member of the executive committee for the Global Sepsis Alliance. He was the former medical director for Royal Liverpool Hospitals. He works in advancing quality uh, of sepsis collaborative in Northwest England, as well as he's the clinical advisor for sepsis in NHS in England. Uh, Dr. Natsubo is gonna talk about the quality indicators of, for sepsis in low middle income country. For you, Dr. Natsubo. Thank you, um, Maha, for that uh, introduction. And thank you to the organizers for inviting me to speak at this uh, World Sepsis Congress. Um, it's uh, past midnight in Abu Dhabi, so good, good morning. It is a pleasure to see that there are so many speakers from uh, low middle income countries in, Af in Africa um, represented in this World Sepsis Congress, and also that issues that are pertinent to low and middle income countries and Africa specifically are represented. So thank you to the organizers. So I will be talking about the African research collaboration on sepsis Delphi study on quality indicators for sepsis in low and middle income countries, specifically Africa. And I think it will help bring together some of the issues that have already been raised by my colleagues who have just uh, presented. So this, um, this study I'm presenting today is, is funded by the National Institute for Health Research Global Health Research Grant. Um, 
However, the views that I will be representing here are the views of the authors and not necessarily those of the NIHR or Department of Health and Social Care. So sepsis is responsible for over 40 million um, um, uh, illness, episodes of illness a year globally and uh, more than 11 million uh, deaths per year worldwide. Um, the majority of the burden of disease for sepsis is in low and middle income countries, including Africa, where more than about 85% of cases of sepsis occur. In addition to the numbers, the mortality related to sepsis is much higher in low and middle income countries, such as uh, continents like Africa, with mortality of 40 to 50%. Now, despite this high burden of disease and high mortality, most of the quality improvement projects and clinical audits at regional and national level have been in high income countries. We've learned about improvements in mortality with uh, regional sepsis improvement projects in New South Wales, Australia, British Columbia, Canada, um, sepsis mandates in the US, and closer to where I've worked previously in, the, in, the, uh, in England, the National Health Service in England, the quality and outcomes framework in England requiring patients with a high uh, early warning score, patients who are critically ill with an early warning score of more than five to be screened for sepsis and then patients with sepsis to receive antibiotics within one hour and for antibiotics to be reviewed within three days of prescription. Now, such quality improvement pro projects, such as the quality and outcomes framework in the National Health Service in England has also been associated with reduced reduction in mortality. However, in low income countries, and specifically in Africa, we've seen very few quality improvement projects. And part of that is because of the absence of agreed metrics. So in low income countries, we do not currently have agreed metrics for quality of care in sepsis. So we set out to define a quality of care standards framework that can be used for patients with critical illness in low and income countries in Africa with a focus on sepsis. And the purpose was to set out quality measures which, we, which could be used as a tool at hospital or healthcare level to assess the quality of critical care, to identify where the gaps were in, in care, and also to benchmark quality and track monitor improvements within different healthcare facilities. So the framework which we chose to use is a framework which is well established, the WHO standards of quality of, critical, of, quality of care in maternal and newborn care, which um, most of you may have already come across. We developed similar quality standards for critical care and sepsis, and then we went through a modified multi-stage Delphi process through a web-based portal. The participants that we used for the Delphi process were purposely selected to ensure that they came from a wide range of specialties and involved not only clinical specialties, but also healthcare managers at regional and national level, but also international level, and also involved government as well as non-governmental organizations. We also used a snowball, snowball sampling process to ensure that we had a broad coverage in terms of areas that we thought were underrepresented. 
So what have we achieved since 2009 at the beginning when the African Research Collaboration of SEPSA started? We have used a steering group to develop standards, statements, and measures, and then we've presented them through the Delphi process to a panel of experts for opinion. And we've also then um, reviewed the feedback, refined the framework, and currently re-engaging with participants. So what was the quality of care framework that we used? Now the WHO maternal and newborn care uh, quality standard framework has eight standards. And by standards, these are what is needed to provide um, a high quality care. So eight standards, need what's needed to provide um, high quality care. Underneath these standards are statements, quality statements, which are the priorities for improving the quality of care. And then underneath those are criteria for assessing the quality of care, which are the quality measures, input measures, output measures, and outcome measures. So let's see how we uh, frame them for critical illness and sepsis in low and middle income countries. We divided them into three groups of standards. The first is, is for standards involving provision of care. Standard one, which is every critically patient, um, is identified and receives essential evidence-based care and management. Standard two, that health information system enables use of data to ensure early appropriate action to improve the care of critically ill patients. And then standard three, every critically ill patient that cannot be dealt with effectively with the available resources is appropriately referred. So it's about referral of patients onto different healthcare facilities or different settings where they can receive higher levels of care. The next group of standards is about experience of care. So standard four is about communication with critically unwell patients and their families, ensuring that it's effective and that they respond to their needs and preferences. And in standard five, all critically ill patients receiving care which respects and preserves their dignity without suffering financial hardship. And in six, critically ill patients and their families receiving emotional support which fulfills their needs. And then we have a third group of cross-cutting issues which involves standard seven and eight, which is standard seven, that competent, motivated and empathic staff are consistently available to provide care to critical ill patients. And in standard eight, health, health facilities have appropriate physical environment to provide care, um, such as water, sanitation, energy, et cetera. So to see, give you an example of how the standards, statements, and measures are related, this is one of the standards, standard one, every critical patient is identified and receives essential evidence-based care management. And then related to that, this is the first statement, that every patient has standardized assessment of severity of illness at the point of seeking care. And then related to that, you have input process and outcome measures. And these are the examples of input measures related to that specific statement. So uh, just to give you again a feel of, of it, it's quite a comprehensive uh, process, but to give you a feel of it, because we've only got 10 minutes, standard one, which refers to identification of critical ill patients and receiving evidence-based care management have different statements and have four and um, eight statements underneath these, this standard. 
So about every patient receiving standardized assessment and severity of illness at the point of seeking care. And every patient also has critical illness is treated with an urgency which related to their severity of illness and that bundles of care and guidelines are also used, best available evidence is uh, used within these bundles and that every critical patient has their need for antimicrobial therapy assessed and if required, then it's given in a timely manner and appropriate manner. And then the last um, statements is about clinical diagnosis, which identify monitor common and treatable pathology, um, which are routinely available to all critical patients. Not every patient with critical illness receives immediate treatment for airway problems based on base available evidence and also receiving um, immediate treatment for breathing problems and then immediate treatment also for circulatory um, problems based on best available evidence. So what have we learned so far from the process? It's been a difficult process for getting participants to determine what is actually achievable within lower middle income countries and in Africa, similar to what we heard for the surviving sepsis um, guidelines development. There's also been conflicting feedback about what is um, what is, is possible and what is important based on people coming from different healthcare settings, the participants being from different healthcare settings. And you will also see that there has been underrepresentation in, in some areas um, for the participants. So, for example, there was quite high representation in terms of percentage of participants from people involved in research internationally and also intensivists, people involved in critical care, nurses and physicians, but less um, involvement of patients in, in, the, in, the, in the Delphi process as well as emergency medicine, people involved in emergency medicine. So in conclusion, poor uh, quality of care and weak health system has exacerbated mobility and mortality rates for sepsis in Africa and other low and middle income country settings. This is something we need to over overturn, but quality standards developed through a broad-based Delphi consultation process, which we've gone through with the African Research Collaboration on Sepsis. This can provide context specific and practical and relevant standards for improving quality of care. And this is what we're finalizing at the moment. We're going through a process, which is in the final round of refining the measures, which will then represent to the panel and members and then give a, get a final op opinion. And we look forward to, to publishing the uh, quality standards. So to finish off, I'd like to thank uh, um, these people who have been instrumental in this, in this project, Felix Limbani, who is, who is a social science research associate who's coordinated this project, and uh, Dr. Jamie Rylance and Shevin Jacob, who, who has just presented, who are the, the co-chief investigators for African Research Collaboration on Sepsis, led from Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and also the steering group members of the ARCS Delphi study. And, and, and various uh, other stakeholders that have contributed to this work. So thank you, and I look forward to taking any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Manuel. Uh, I have a few comments from the audience that they are basically uh, interested in the information that were shared within the presentations, some comments about the current status of uh, knowledge of healthcare provider in Africa related to sepsis. But I would like you to highlight from your own experience and quality improvement project of sepsis, uh, the importance of using uh, technology, using e-alert, using innovations 
to basically standardize the process of recognizing managing patients with sepsis. So I think that is a really important tool which has led to significant improvements in sepsis in high income countries. And we've seen that in in North America, specifically in England, where where I worked previously, um, tools for um, recording vital signs and automatically screening patients for sepsis with high early warning score and triggering and alerting um, um, healthcare workers to uh, screen for sepsis, uh, consider sepsis, and then for us helping them manage sepsis by providing a bundle of care have been shown to be really effective. Those uh, similar tools are not tools which we've seen used to an extent that is required in low and middle income countries, but there's huge potential for those, for, for that to be done in in, health, in low and middle income countries because increasingly we're seeing um, electronic patient records being used in low and middle income countries and um, technology, internet access, mobile phones. So there's also need for, for similar projects to be carried out in low and middle income countries with assessment to demonstrate their impact on quality improvement and impact on mortality. And that is, I think, an area for research and also development that needs to be strengthened in low and middle income countries. Thank you so much, Dr. Emmanuel. There's the questions, and I think you kind of highlight the answer in my previous question. How can low middle income countries will be able to implement those standards? So that is really um, a really important question. As you see, the standards are quite comprehensive and getting measures that are linked to these standards that are practical, measurable, valid, important is what is our next challenge. And the, the steering group and the Delphi panel are going to have to, re, to, to, to define that. It's likely that we're going to have a lot of different standards, a lot of different measures. And I think it's also going to be part, uh, one of the key outcomes and priorities for the group will be to highlight what are the priorities. Um, so an example, uh, I said, when I'm going back to the National Health Service in England, uh, in that there were three measures taken for the quality and outcome framework, which was measuring vital signs, developing early warning score, measuring early warning score, the national early warning score, screening for sepsis, starting antibiotics within one hour, for sepsis and then reviewing antibiotics within three days, 72 hours. Now we have to come up with similar measures, um, but also highlight what is actually the key measures that make a difference. And, um, and, and I, 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 I'm not going to preempt what the panel is going to, 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 to conclude, but I'm sure you, um, as, as, as you say, a lot of people were looking forward to what we produce because I, we're hoping that when we do produce that and highlight the priorities, it's going to also lead to, to just going to drive a lot of improvements. And we'll, we hope to see quality improvement projects using these, these standards to assess quality and also um, monitor uh, quality of care for critical care and sepsis in low and middle income countries. Thank you so much, Dr. Emmanuel. That's all for the session. So that's the concluding of the final session of uh, the World Sepsis Congress for 2021. Uh, I would like to thank our attendees, our audience, uh, as well as uh, my colleague from the organizing, uh, organizing and Scientific Committee. Uh, a huge thank you to our uh, sponsors for their supports and efforts with us make this uh, available to all of you. 
there are good news that these sessions are recorded. So those of you who did not manage to attend the entire conference, you can basically log in to the Congress websites. Uh, there will be available recorded session in YouTube and Apple podcast. And if you need the, to know more about the details uh, about schedule of releasing these sessions, they're going to be started to be released from next week. You can review the Congress website for the specific dates for the each session. Uh, by that, I would like to conclude and I would like to move to the closing ceremony, uh, which is uh, closing remarks by my colleague Amrana. Uh, before that, please don't follow, uh, don't forget to follow us on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And uh, we hope that you spread the message for your uh, team, uh, team, for your family members, for your policymakers, and aiming to have a world free from sepsis. Uh, so now for uh, Amrana for the closing remarks. Thank you so much, Maha, for an excellent final session of the Congress and very nicely moderated. Hello, everyone. My name is Imran Malik, and I am the co-chair of this World Sepsis Congress of 2021. Yesterday, you heard from Dr. Tex Kassoon, president of the Global Sepsis Alliance and chair of this Congress, welcoming you to a wide scope of session topics with a focus of sepsis and COVID-19. Now, as we come to a close of the Congress, and on behalf of the Congress organizers and the GSA, I would like to express my gratitude to you, our registrants and audience members, for your viewing of this Congress. The aim of the Congress was to bring the discussion about prevention, survival, and survivorship from sepsis and COVID-19 to the forefront with robust and transparent information. And in that, I believe we have been very successful. The Congress had over 90 speakers and uh, moderators, uh, from over 30 countries, bringing their expertise to approximately 20,000 registrants. In the setting of this terrible COVID-19 pandemic, what we have discussed and learned is extremely valuable and relevant. These sessions took us from the impact of policy and politics on science and healthcare to the reality of health inequities, the problems of patient safety and AMR throughout the world, how novel therapies and immunomodulation for COVID-19 could translate to sepsis treatment, and how innovative trials and big data are creating possibilities never previously imagined. And finally, the amazing stories and sharing of patients, families, and healthcare workers whose stories of suffering and loss left us heartbroken, yet showed us all the hope and resilience present in all of us. While it's extremely important for us to identify and discuss the problems posed by sepsis and COVID-19, it is just as imperative that we find ways to transform our knowledge into action. Some of those ways were discussed during the Congress and we'll need to remain engaged and watch diligently to support those efforts and ensure progress is made, always with equity in mind. I wanna say thank you to our fantastic speakers and moderators for their excellent sessions. All of those wonderful talks and panels and stories were made possible through months and months of hard work by the Congress organizers and GSA administrative team, as well as the team at NC3. And to them, I would like to extend my thanks and gratitude. Thank you to my partner in crime, Dr. Tex Kassoon, for his leadership as chair of this Congress and for keeping the heart and the lightheartedness in our work. 
I would like to add a special thank you to Dr. Conrad Reinhardt, founder and past president of GSA and a relentless advocate for sepsis awareness, for his unparalleled insights and input in the development of this Congress. Finally, I give particular thanks to our wonderful sponsors whose support has helped bring this Congress to fruition. Specifically, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, BD Company, Radiometer, Thermo Fisher, Beckman Coulter, Biomaru, Janssen, Hillrom, and InflaRx. Before I end, I would also like to remind everyone that the sessions from the Congress will become available on YouTube and on Apple Podcasts incrementally every week on Tuesdays, starting on April 27th. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more details on the rollout of the sessions and about our future Congress Spotlight in April 2022. I send you off now with the words of Dr. Wilbur Sawyer, stolen from Texas Talk, reminding us how globally connected we are. No country can live to itself in disease prevention. A failure of one is a failure of all. With these words, we conclude the Congress, but this is certainly not the end. We hope to see you again soon as we keep advocating to improve lives holistically from sepsis and illness worldwide beyond the usual outcomes we follow. I want to thank you sincerely to all and be safe. Thank you so much for your continued interest over the last weeks. We sincerely appreciate it. A huge shout out to everybody who worked on World Sepsis Congress behind the scenes. The program chairs Imrana Malik and Tex Kisun, the scientific committee, and Marvin Zick and his team from the GSA headquarters. This has been the last session of this year's World Sepsis Congress, but we will return in 2022. Stay tuned to this channel for any future announcements. Thanks again, and stay safe and well.